human nature being what it is, people know what they know. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 47, and today's guest is Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Consulting, a consultancy focused on digital commerce. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rick Watson, founder and CEO of his own consulting business, RMW Commerce Consulting. In 2019, Rick formed his own consulting firm after spending the prior 20 years as a technology entrepreneur and operator exclusively in the e-commerce industry with companies like Channel Advisor, BarnesandNoble.com, Merchantry, and Pitney Bowes. In addition to his subject matter expertise, he has a vast network of industry experts and talent across marketing, business development, and solutions providers to add bench strength to larger projects and initiatives. His practice areas are centered around helping investors and management teams grow their digital commerce initiatives, from assessment to planning, all the way through execution. Rick also has a podcast, The Watson Weekly, and a weekly newsletter. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Well, my pleasure. And uh, you know, you're a, a busy guy. You've got the Watson Weekly and, and the newsletter. We'll, we'll get into that. But before, um, for those that have listened to the show previously, we'd like to, to start off, give some flavor of, of who the guest is. You know, either something that's you know, kind of remarkable about your upbringing or your life or just something that you, know, you think is remarkable about Rick Watson. You know, I, I think one thing that is continually surprises people is where I grew up. I grew up in New Orleans. It's a place where people like to visit, but they're like, I don't know if I can live there. It was actually a fun place to grow up. It's a very, you might not think it if you're only in the, you know, two square miles of the French Quarter or whatever, but it, you know, it's a very family oriented place. And, you know, one of the things I love uh, about being from New Orleans is it always starts a good conversation. People, either just got back from there or they want to go there with their family or their, their significant others. Uh, and so that, that's, that's always a lot of fun. I could just imagine you walking down, you know, the street in you know, some, some area of the French quarter when you were eight years old, you know, Oh, look what's going on here, mommy. Well, a lot of stuff seems normal. That's not normal. And so you get exposed. I, I would say one of the mottos of New Orleans that I absolutely love, it's called variety of the, is the spice of life. I, I love it because it teaches you to appreciate people that are different than yourself, whether that ex, is experiences, backgrounds, interests, upbringing, wherever it is, you're, you're just kind of taught to accept people as they are. And it just adds something extra to the flavor of the, of the place. And New Orleans definitely sort of teaches you that. Nice. 
So, you know, I, I mentioned that you're a busy guy and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, your career and how you got started, but, you know, you've uh, not only do, do you consult, but you provide a lot of content. You know, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I'm out there on, on LinkedIn quite a bit. Um, I might see you more on my feed than just about anybody. Um, and you do a lot of writing, uh, obviously, along with your podcast. What stimulates the ideas, you know, that you come up with to write about? Yeah, I, I would say... <laughs> There are probably three major streams of content. One is the obvious stuff is kind of the big company earnings. And the reason you follow the big companies is because they're investing the most, they have the most customers. And so that's what a lot of people are interested in about. A lot of times maybe they're on the provider or they're considering this provider and they just want to know, you know, whether it's Shopify or Amazon or any of the providers like Walmart, just what's happening and what does it what does it mean? Second is just sort of current events, things that are happening day to day, such and such, you know, certain company acquires another company or they announce the new product or service or what it means. So that's, that's kind of an idea, an idea source for me. And then the third source of ideas is actually my work and my career. You know, sometimes I just literally, if I can't, like, there's nothing in the news, of course, in e-commerce, that's usually pretty rare. You know, I just sit back and think about you know, brainstorm a couple ideas. Like, you know, if I go back to my time at this company, what was I struggling with and why? And just write about that. That's the thing that I think that's most surprised me about content is the personal stuff gets more interest than you think it might. People can relate to it. They can say, yeah, he's talking about X. And yeah, I had that problem too. And, you know, and now you fit it to, you know, to uh, your, your personal experience, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I think being vulnerable about that kind of stuff is is not easy because social media is meant to be, uh, I don't know if it's meant to be or not, but it seems to have become this sort of fake lifestyle place where people project only their best selves and not their struggles. And I, I think, you know, remembering that is is super helpful to me for anyone creating content as well. You seemingly listen to a lot of the earnings calls of, of, of public companies. That's a good place to get information, yeah? Yeah, definitely. It's a good place to get information. I think it, it still fascinates me that I think those are undercovered. And I think it's a, fa- it's a place where you're interviewing the top executives of the companies. And in some cases, it's questions that they're not, they're not prepared for. Um, because the analysts are asking some pointed question about something that happened that maybe wasn't pointed to, and CNBC and Bloomberg is going to cover, you know, whether this company is five percent profitable or ten percent profitable, whatever they were supposed to be. Most of that stuff I only care about tangentially. I I care a lot more about strategy and direction. Like, why are they doing what they're doing? What does it mean? for the rest of everyone else that are just trying to make our way in e-commerce, um, whether we're a brand or a software provider or something like that. And I think you can learn a lot about how and why people make decisions just by listening to their answers to questions, which I don't know why that's so fascinating to me, but it's just always been interesting to me. Well, you know, in, in those public calls, you know, on the one hand, they're trying to play, they're trying to make sure that there's no gotcha 
questions in there and how they answer so that they're not a, you know, a, a sound bite, you know, perhaps on, on something else. Uh, so I imagine, you know, they're somewhat reserved, but yeah, it, it's, it's good. I do like listening as well. And I, I think you can garner uh, a, a lot of perspective and not just on whether the stock is going to perform well or not, but, you know, in how we should be thinking about, you know, our businesses and, and being an e-commerce executive. So good thoughts there. Early in your career, um, you know, I came out of economics and, and finance. You had a different path. Tell us about it. Yeah, my, my background, I would say, came out of really technology. And it kind of started when I got my first Apple computer when I was, you know, 10 or 12 back in the day. And I, I started using it, you know, to play games, of course, which is, you know, the first thing that anyone, a lot of people do, but then also to, to program. And I, and I learned how to, how to program kind of on my own initially. And then uh, with a couple of classes, you know, took some of the first high school classes that I was able to. So I ended up going into electrical engineering, computer science, and kind of studied it at the highest level. I, you know, I, I finished my master's at Vanderbilt in, in the same field, electrical engineering, computer science. I was doing early work in robotics and artificial intelligence. Um, so human-robot interaction for the purposes of like, you know, is essentially is a research platform for like feeding and caring for the elderly, people that couldn't take care of themselves. Uh, and it involves things like vis computer vision, object recognition, you know, robotic arm motion, six degree of freedom, uh, robotic arms. How do, how do you control those in a way that doesn't hurt a human that's in the vicinity of them? So I was exposed to just, just like really brilliant people. And I, I never actually, funny thing is like, I never planned to get a master's. Uh, but I happened to be an intern in the lab as I was finishing my undergrad. And I'm like, I'm never going to have a chance to be with these people again. So I went to the professors like, can I get my master's here? And, and luckily, they, they agreed to it. So that, that was kind of my early, you know, where, where I came from before any of this e-commerce uh, kind of stuff uh, started. But you got to Channel Advisor, and uh, where in the stage of Channel Advisor did you join? It must have been fairly early, right? Yeah, very early on. I would say I, I, I joined the company that predated Channel Advisor, which was called Stingray. It had nothing to do with e-commerce. It was Scott Wingo, who was the founder of Channel Advisor. His first company was called Stingray Software. He founded it with two other co companies or two other partners in North Carolina, one of which, Aris, was one of the co-founders of Channel Advisor. And... About a, a year after I joined Stingray, um, which was something like May 98, in something like June 99, he founded Channel Advisor with, with five or six people. I joined you know, five or six months later in December of 99. And so it wasn't called Channel Advisor back then. It was called auctionrover.com. And this was at the height of even, even before Google was like the biggest search company. eBay was getting its start. But there are probably about 50 to 100 other auction sites. Auctions were a huge trend um, and, and some of the first you know, applications of, of e-commerce, as you would say. And we were, we were going to be an auction, uh, sort of an auction meta search engine. So to, we were going to crawl every auction site and be a portal where anyone could find something on any auction site, not just eBay. And so ultimately, Channel Advisor uh, became a different business and but you you were there for quite some time yeah so i was there for 10 years or a little over 10 years and started as a software engineering 
you know, became uh, a team lead there, managing engineers, moved over to software product management, which is generally more responsible for the business vision, where the, where the software is going next. You have a lot more ability to talk to customers. And I, I found that I really enjoyed the process of being able to talk to customers and figuring out what made them tick. Visiting warehouses, going to their site. And the thing that was most exciting to me is that we were in the, you know, in the hole writing software, like, you know, in, in a cube somewhere. You're not supposed to go talk to anyone. But actually, realized by going to visit customers that their site and their facilities were way different than anyone at the company would think um, if they never actually got out and go talk to a customer. So that, that was the funnest part for me is, is a, seeing all these entrepreneurs that were trying to grow their businesses on eBay. And we even had some large customers like Dell and IBM uh, as some of the first Channel Advisor customers too. So there were some big early bets on marketplaces that happened at Channel Advisor that Kind of still continue today. Perfect segue. So you you wind up going to Barnes and Noble, and you have a role in in marketplaces, and you know that was very early, you know, marketplace concept. And so maybe tell us just a little bit what you were brought there to do, and what you feel like you accomplished. Yeah. So um, what I was brought there to do, Barnes and Noble was on a little bit of a reboot. You know, obviously they they clearly missed the boat with regards to the rise of Amazon, and and were struggling to find their place in the world, and so. Uh, there, there was a new a CEO and a president of, of BarnesandNoble.com. Is actually John the the president of BarnesandNoble.com is actually the founder of Peloton now. John Foley, his last job right before he started Peloton was so he was actually a business partner at at Channel Advisor. So I emailed him saying, "Look, I'm looking to go to New York City, and I want to do something with marketplace." He's like, "Well, if you're looking, you, you have a job. We we need you to help." start our new marketplace. So I'm like, all right. So three months later, I moved to New York City from North Carolina. And um, my job was to essentially pioneer the, the growth of a new marketplace, third-party seller business at Barnes & Noble, built with completely custom technology. And the whole point was to introduce Barnes & Noble brand into non-book categories. So I mean, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble store, probably about a third of the floor space is dedicated to things like kids, baby items, gifts, uh, electronics, things like that. But none of that stuff was online. You know, it was mostly just a book site because the warehouses couldn't ship anything that wasn't shaped like a book. Uh, and so how could we use the power of the Barnes & Noble brand, which is a very trusted brand, to introduce more and different types of products and grow the selection of the site? And and so if we take it to today's terms, you know, you've got a company out there uh, called Miracle, which is is kind of the big guy in in helping brands build marketplaces. Uh, we just saw this week that Bed and Bath announced, you know, the development of a marketplace. You know, what's your perspective there? Are we going to are we at the beginning, the middle, the end of companies adopting you know marketplaces for businesses? You know, I, I don't think we're at the beginning. I, I think there are enough marketplaces out there that, and, and enough funding. I mean, Miracle it's itself has had, what, several hundred million dollars at least of funding, um, probably north of half a billion. So I think we're in the, in, the, in the middle stages there. For the consumer side, I still think we're in early innings on business to business and government uh, and, and industrial related exchanges. So I think the, the marketplace space overall still has quite a bit of room to run. Yeah. And, and if I'm a retailer and I'm, uh, I, I 
this is going to be an easy question for you to answer. If I'm a retailer and I'm deciding whether I should participate in marketplaces, you know, how do you help me frame that decision? I, I think there's a couple of things. Number one is, do I have enough traffic? You can put something on your site, but it, you know, it's a little bit like a tree falls in the woods. If you can't drive traffic to it and you can't convert that traffic, then there's no point in having a marketplace. And so you, you see a lot of retailers that aren't at scale, a big enough scale, start a marketplace, and then they assume that the marketplace on its own is going to drive traffic and people are going to just going to flock to a site just because they found a new widget on there. That's usually not the case. Usually it's the case where retailers are supply constrained. And so I would think about not only do you have traffic, but where are you constrained in supply that your buyers are actively coming to you, whether you can find that analytically through things like zero search results, where people are searching on your site and they're coming up with zero over and over, or your surveys and interviews see that you can extend your brand into either adjacent categories that you're not in or deeper in categories that you're already known for. And so I say, depending on how far afield you go in your, your existing brand, the shorter term money is in deepening your selection in either brands that you carry now that aren't on your site because you can't buy enough of them wholesale or in like close adjacencies. I think that we're going to continue to see, you know, more and more brands. And, and it, I find it interesting because, you know, some brands want to put things on their site that I'm not sure that even though the, the customer might know that it's not coming from them, some customers are, you know, if you're selling apparel, do they want to buy books, you know, for example, um, you know, but then again, we've all been trained to buy anything that you possibly want <laughs> at, Am at Amazon. So um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let's talk about Merchantry. Um, I wasn't familiar with that business. You were CEO there. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so I, I joined actually, you know, it wasn't a business I founded. I joined as the head of operations and I was I was promoted to CEO about six months in. The company was was trying to raise money. The whole idea behind Merchantry was essentially it was, you know, almost at the time, which was about 2012, it's a little bit of a combination of something like what Miracle is today and what Commerce Hub is. And so it could it could be useful in both dropship and marketplace software situations to allow retailers to ex expand their range. And so we had customers early on, um, you know, they were actually quite eclectic, like PacSun, McClendon's Hardware, uh, La Redoute in France, which is a large French catalog business, Bluefly was one of the larger customers. If, you know, if anyone remembers um, Bluefly, and, you know, it's been reborn a couple of times as a brand, as a marketplace business. So you know, our idea, you know, the idea was that marketplaces were going to be a trend, you know, <laughs> similar to our earlier discussion. So, you know, I think uh, a lot of my career, I, I've spent in and around the marketplace space from different angles, either software helping brands go to marketplaces, building uh, your own marketplace from scratch in Barnes and Noble, and then being uh, on the other end of Channel Advisor, which is providing the marketplace infrastructure for a retailer that where range extension is a priority. You talk about La Redoute. Um, I worked for uh, a company that's its current state is called Full Beauty Brands, but uh -huh. uh, in the old days it was Brylane and then Brylane had been bought basically by the parent of, of La Redoute. 
and uh, there was combination of these businesses, these uh, catalog and internet businesses worldwide, and um, so be- became aware of La Redoute and you know the ways that they were conducting business it was very different than what we were doing in the U.S. Uh, but it was, you know, it was interesting. So then you get to to Pitney Bowes. I'm guessing w- was that through the border free acquisition. Um, actually it was not. Um, so what happened is, you know, I, I became CEO of Merchantry in somewhat trying times. It was kind of a turnaround situation where the company was not selling enough and the expenses were very high. And so it's part of the reason why I became CEO and it was one of the most stressful periods going through the next two and a half years as a first time CEO, not knowing what I'm, what I'm doing, trying to reduce expenses, trying to build a new management team. Ended up selling the company uh, about two and a half, three years later, and then kind of looking for my next landing spot. I wanted to do something a little bit less stressful than being at a startup that's trying to survive, uh, scrape for every every dollar. And so I'm like, let me go for a little bit more established company in a space. I had got contacted by two or three different companies, all in the cross-border space. And so I kind of took that as a signal that this is going to be an interesting space to be a part of, and I'm glad I did. So the company had acquired Border Free about a year before I joined, and they were looking for a product leader to replace, I think, one of the exited you know, leaders uh, that didn't, you know, didn't continue on you know, a year or two after the acquisition. So, you know, my job was to head up the product strategy for the cross-border uh, division there. You know, as I look at all the things that are prominent for e-commerce businesses to uh, talk about and to think about execution, you know, we talk about marketplaces, we can talk about, you know, uh, circular economy, and, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that. Um, international seemed like it was hot a few years ago, and it feels like it's lost some of that heat and luster. What's your sense? Yeah, I mean, we were seeing this. Um, if you kind of look back at the time of the border free acquisition, they went public at like the perfect time, which is the time when the dollar was very weak compared to other currencies. And so about two years after the acquisition, things flipped and that the dollar became very expensive, which meant it was harder for U.S. for foreign consumers to buy U.S. products in, in, a, in a cheap way. That currency flip hurts cross-border, at least particularly for U.S. companies that are trying to get foreign consumers to buy brands. The second thing is the political climate. Anytime you see extra tariffs and things like this, it affects cross-border. Every industry, I would say, in the past four, you know, four to six years or so has, has lamented the fact that you know, their earnings have been hurt somewhat by friction in trade because the whole idea behind cross-border is to make that trade is as easy and seamless as possible. Yeah, you know, we, we talk about some of those bigger companies, you know, like Amazon. You know, one of the big players in our space is Shopify. You hear lots about them. Uh, they came out yesterday and announced a uh, headless commerce uh, solution uh, that, and we could probably spend an hour on headless <laughs> commerce and what that even means. Um, but let's talk about Shopify. Customers, you know, clients potentially come to you. Maybe they have some perspective on uh, whether or not they want to, uh, you know, build a new platform for e-commerce. How, how does Shopify, you know, kind of live in your mind for, for clients that you're helping? Yeah, look, I, I think Shopify has done a tremendous job at coming to a place of the really what Shopify has nailed is that price performance ratio in the cloud. 
And so it's, it's easy to deploy, it's relatively low cost compared to others, other solutions, and it has a high degree of functionality. So the fact that it combines all that in a simple solution is very appealing to a lot of, particularly to a lot of companies that don't need anything too esoteric in their e-com platform. They just need to get a site up and running. They need to have a, a very good experience, maybe not necessarily the best experience anywhere anyone's ever seen in their entire lives, but a very good experience. Then Shopify, it, it hits a lot of those levers because the same thing, you know, six, seven, 10 years ago was way more expensive for a mid-market, you know, luxury brand, apparel brand, and, you know, any, anyone in these sort of mainstream consumer internet categories, e-commerce used to be way more expensive to get to market with. Yeah. And they seem to uh, have, have checked those boxes, you know, reasonably well. I know when I was at Steve Madden, um, was early at my tenure there and, you know, we were looking to replatform. This is, you know, 2011, 2012 or so. And, you know, we looked at Shopify and just didn't think that at that moment in time, they were quite ready to handle a business of, of our size. Uh, but, you know, today, uh, they certainly are capable of, of doing that and are helping many Brit businesses, uh, you know, thrive. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. You consult now. Who comes to Rick Watson for help? Yeah, there, there's there's a couple of different lanes of, of people that come to me. I would say primarily it's it's two. One is and and it, it probably it's not too surprising given my background. One is generally private equity backed brands that are looking to undergo some kind of transformation. Usually their wholesale or retail revenue is measured in you know in between 100 and a billion dollars in sales, and their e-commerce is measured in something like less than five to ten percent of that number, whatever that number is. If it's a hundred million dollars, maybe their e-com is five billion dollars. If it's a five hundred million dollar company, maybe their e-com is thirty million dollars. But they know they have some ground to cover in transforming themselves from a technology, from a strategy point of view, from a people process point of view. And so the impetus is really. We know we need to do something, but we don't have the internal expertise to do it because usually it starts with talent or vision. Like We just don't have the staff that's been there, done that before, and we don't have two years to waste figuring it out ourselves. So they come to you and you guide them on how to get there more quickly. Yeah. So there's kind of a, sort of three sets of services that I generally tend to offer. One is starting with audit and recommendations. So just tell us where we are, benchmark us relative to our peers in, you know, in, in our peer group, tell us where the gaps are, and give us sort of a prioritized punch list of things that we should be doing next. Not necessarily that you're going to help us implement them all, but give us a whole bunch of things to think about in a very short, condensed sort of audit format. That's kind of number one. Second is 
what I call kind of strategic planning. Usually that's a little bit more involved engagement where we're at a pivot point in our business. Whatever we've been trying for the past five years isn't working as we expect it to. We need someone to come up with a new strategy, whether it's positioning relative to the competition, entering a new channel, selecting a new e-commerce platform, those, those sorts of areas. And you know, the, the final sorts of engagements are you know, what I tend to call capability building. And it's usually, you know, obviously, as you know, to be successful in e-commerce, you need to do about 20 things well, <laughs> whether it's like making sure that you're, you're not overrun with fraud or shipping items to consumers on time or converting or attracting digital marketing. People, you know, might be good at four or five of those things, but it's very unlikely that they're going to be good at all, like 10 or 15 of those things. And so they might say, you know, Rick, could you help me find or you help me transition to a new e-com platform? Or can you help me find a new 3PL provider? Or could you tell us where should we be in investing our next dollar? So I call that kind of capability building where you kind of act as almost like an outsourced digital advisor and you help them hire new teams, you help them assess their current teams and you know, sometimes you even help them interview new team members um, because they don't have that expertise in-house. Yeah, sounds very similar. Uh, I know somebody <laughs> else that uh, that does some of that. Uh, I, I'm sure you, you, know, you see a lot of clients. Is there, are there a few things that you just, you know, after you, you, you talk to the clients that you sit there and say to yourself, how could they not be doing this in this day and age? There's got to be some of those, right? Yeah, I mean... I mean, if you talk to anyone, you, you'd almost say all, all of them in some sense, but human nature being what it is, people know what they know. And many of these companies are quite profitable. Uh, and so you kind of, the, the way I think about it, it's almost like you're, you're in the boiling frog, you know, the frog in the boiling water scenario where, you know, the water is cold and then it goes up a one degree every year. And then pretty soon, the market isn't what you thought it was anymore and the frog is dead and you and you like how did that happen well it didn't happen overnight you know pandemic maybe you know that's an existential event but the average business doesn't over overgo a transformation that happens uh, from one year to the next but if you don't invest consistently over a 5 or 10 year period then you can very easily be caught behind the times we we mentioned uh, Amazon a little bit before. You can hardly have a conversation like this without <laughs> Amazon. 1P versus 3P. How are you helping clients, if you have helped clients, think through what's right for them? It, a lot of it depends on goals. And the easiest thing for a traditional brand that is selling into retail is for someone to go Amazon 1P because it's all stuff they know how to do. You know, they might have a, a category manager or a rep at Amazon that they talk to to introduce new products. Amazon buys pallets of things that you're then shipping to Amazon, the same as you're shipping into Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or anyone. And so that tends to be the easiest thing. From an investor point of view, it tends to be the least rewarded revenue multiple. And so this is why I say some of it, for every company, a dollar in revenue is not a dollar in rev is not a dollar in valuation, and so one of the things I counsel people is that third party revenue is sometimes three to five times more valuable than that same dollar of revenue in first party. However, third party revenue from a capability perspective is harder to access for traditional brands because you need to learn 
at least half of the skills, you know, not maybe 100% of the skills, but at least half of the skills you need to learn that would it take to operate your own direct-to-consumer website. Amazon is obviously bringing the traffic and, and the front end and the conversion stuff, but you also need to learn how to do customer service. You need to learn how to deal with people that are squatting on your listings. And, and by the way, you need to learn a lot of new things that are only Amazon that you would never have to learn on your own. But um, particularly the fulfillment tends to be the hardest thing that people worry about. Um, how do I ship to consumers if you, if you didn't come from that background? Okay, that's helpful. And then, you know, I'm sure, you know, because you're, you're so uh, adept at, you know, following, you know, the current events, are there certain technologies or certain kind of, you know, hot buttons that are out there? We talked about marketplace, we hear a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence and virtual reality. What's the kind of that next thing that's going to bubble up that everybody's going to be thinking, geez, we need to play in that space? Wow. You, you know, I, I'm a little bit contrarian on a lot of the new, new stuff. I would, it, it almost depends on who your audience is. I, I think I, I really like the investments that are happening in voice commerce right now, just because I think that combination of convenience and accessibility is so interesting. We still aren't at a place where everyone's buying something from an Alexa or a Google Home, but I think there are enough people interacting and the thing I look at first is like how many brand related queries are you are you making to these devices, this ambient computing? And that number is skyrocketing, which is to me something that's super interesting to pay attention to. Even if you personally you're like, yeah, I would never buy something from an Alexa. But I, I, I think would your kids is the question that I would ask because a lot of these things become generational uh, over time. Interesting. So I'm going to be walking around and say, Alexa, send me X, you know, to home. And all of a sudden it's going to show up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then eventually it's just going to be, you're not even going to have to say it. It's just going to, you're going to think about it and it's going to show up. Yeah. That, that's when it gets scary. I don't know if I want, want to give Jeff Bezos <laughs> that much power. <laughs> We're obviously coming into holiday season. Uh, we're recording this in uh, the early part of November. Uh, what kind of headwinds um, or maybe even tailwinds are you seeing from uh, retailers? You know, I, I think the headwinds are, are the ones that are in the news everywhere right now, in which, of course, is, is supply chain tends to be supply-oriented issues where people don't have the stock that they need. In the supply chain, there are two primary constraints right now that everyone is, is very closely paying attention to. One is capacity, and the second is labor. I think capacity is something that will be solved in the short and medium term, where you're not going to hear about that to me into next year to the extent that you have recently. Labor is, I think, a much bigger challenge. I think we have hit a generational change and the pandemic has caused not only a lot of people to reevaluate what it is they're doing and why they're doing it, it also caused a lot of people that were maybe planning to work two to five more years. Yeah, have caused them to reconsider it's like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the point? It's not enough money to make up for the fact that I want to spend time with the people that I love. Uh, and so I think. We've lost a, I actually have not seen stats which break out the, you know, whatever the great reshuffling or the great retirement, like whatever it is, or the great something that they're calling it, 
broken out by age bracket, but you know, given the fact that America as a whole skews a bit older, uh, it only makes sense that that quite a bit of that reshuffling has has affected that you know kind of the over over fifty generation at least. Yeah, well, and and I think you know you're seeing um, you know some companies now coming out and saying you know look, um, especially the the higher tech companies that are competing for talent, you know they're saying you know we'll pay you the the wage that we would have you know paid you let's say you if you live in San Francisco and you want to go live in Omaha, you know you can go off and do that and we'll pay you the same wage. Um, you know, I think that's going to continue if, if that, if that continues, that will push people, you know, into, you know, moving away from their office. And, uh, and there's just some people that need to be in the office, but, um, you know, the, the remote is not going to, uh, go away for sure. One of the things we see in the news, um, you know, we saw Saks spin out, uh, their e-commerce business. There's been talk, um, you know, about Macy's. What do you make of that? I think we are living in in an investor-driven world right now, that's what I think. I think there's so much capital, number one. At number two, I think there are many mid-market department stores that are struggling because of their balance sheets, too much real estate, underperforming stores. So to me, those are the ingredients for companies that are, out, you know, depending on your point of view, are at risk from this or see it as an opportunity. And so you know, I, was, I was reading a, an, an interview with the Sachs uh, CEO, Mark Betnick, you know, just the last couple of days, and he has drank the whole bottle of Kool-Aid. I, I could tell you, man, he, it's like, we, we're providing the same, it's exactly the same for us. Our people knows how to do, all, all you need to do is just set up 300 separate operating service agreements, and then it's as easy as cake. And like 300 operating service. What does that even mean? And if you're in a, imagine you're a, an employee at a company and you're trying to figure out like, how do I do my job most effectively? Most people can only like fathom one or two KPIs, you know, and, and that's what they need to focus on. Now they suddenly need to understand 300 operating service agreements to deliver good service to a customer. Needless to say, I'm not bullish on this trend. <laughs> Yeah, I, I gathered. Uh, so, you know, we, we talked about the things that you do, um, you know, from a content perspective. So you've got a newsletter. Tell us about that. Yeah, the newsletter is, you know, so what, what I find is that everyone doesn't always read the same things or listen to the same things. So the person who follows me on LinkedIn, there are lots of people that are interested in, in things that I write that never log into LinkedIn ever. Um, decision makers. And so my newsletter is just a way for people to find, I would say, similar related content that is in, in a little bit different format, a little less frequent than LinkedIn usually it comes out about every two weeks. And it also gives me a little bit closer relationship. I can put out some unique content, some longer form content that links back to my website that, you know, LinkedIn, you only have thousand characters, you know, whatever it is, you know, they let you type in, I think something like 300 characters, maybe that's why the newsletter kind of came in. So it's really kind of a a little bit of my own multi-channel diversification strategy. There's only so much you can depend on these big aggregators for content, because if they change their algorithm, then do you really own any of the people that are listening to you? Right. And your podcast, the Watson Weekly. Yeah, the Watson Weekly, that's something, you know, 
probably in the last two years, that's been the most consistent question I've got is like, why don't you have a podcast? You know, I, I get that question at least a couple times a month. And so I thought about it like this year, earlier this year, I was thinking about it and I wanted to do something where the format was a little bit different than a lot of other players. Not because I didn't listen to other podcasts. I love all kinds of podcast format, but I wanted to do something where I thought it was a gap in the market. The normal podcast is 30 to 60 minutes and it's a long form interview style. Like what if I go in the opposite direction, just provide something that's super relevant. It's no more than 15 minutes and it covers not only what's happening, but why it's happening. And then if the listener wants to read more, then they can go their own explanation, but they're motivated. They don't have to displace someone else's, uh, podcast to listen to me um, because it's only uh, a few minutes of their week. Yeah. Well, it's great. I, I've enjoyed uh, listening. So keep up the good work. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Anyway, we're, we're down to the, uh, the end of the show here. I wanted to thank you uh, again for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, doing this with you. We, I do this uh, quick seven questions. Uh, you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? They get a lot of uh, flack sometimes, but I like Allbirds. Ah, okay. I, I like that brand. New, newly public. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the favorite app on your phone? I would say my new favorite app is, is something called Waking Up, which is kind of like a, it's a meditation and mindfulness app, uh, which is actually kind of nice to sort of forget everything and just, just center myself. Yeah, I've tried to meditate, but I can't wait till it's over. So <laughs> it doesn't work. That's the problem. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Um, Viore Clothing. Love it. Great. Yeah, I love that brand. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? You know, I've always enjoyed running, or at least in the past 10 years or so, but I always wish I could run faster. Like, I've always been, my, my legs are always short on one end. And so, you know, the people that can really stride long, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always envied the, the people that look like they're running effortlessly. Right? Yeah, yeah that's uh, not me. I always yeah. like huffing and puffing. Charitable organization that you're most passionate about? Where I've contributed is, is uh, my local high, high school where I grew up in, in New Orleans. You know, you know, so I think things that are personal to me are, are meaningful. Very nice. If you had one superpower, what would it be? I was kind of like Superman, super strength to be able to pick up things that no one else could pick up or something. I thought, always thought that would be fun. And the last one, other than your family, what's your most prized possession? Most prized, I don't know, my newest cool possession that I like is actually my new podcast microphone, which is a, a, a Shure SM7B. So that, that's been a lot of fun to get to know. And, and I understand how it helps you actually, you know, the quality of the, of the recordings. Yep. And, uh, you know, we've talked about some of the things that you do content wise, where can people reach out to you on social media? Yeah. On social media, LinkedIn is a good place. Just search for Rick Watson, or if you can't find me, Rick Watson, e-commerce and I you know I should come up. Okay, great. Rick, thanks so much for the time. Good insights here. Appreciate you taking the time and, uh, let's uh, stay in touch. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Rick Watson for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, as both a consumer and a brand, the move to voice commerce is going to continue. The Alexas of the world are going to take on a more significant role in commerce in the coming years. Number two, stay educated. 
The best way to refine your skills is to follow current events, follow the public companies in their quarterly reports, and network with your peers. Work hard to build your network as it will pay dividends down the road professionally and personally. And number three, all too often companies do not want to pay for third-party consultants or advisors. The fact is that what could take you years to learn on your own is likely known by others who have already done it. Bring in qualified people to help accelerate your business. Be willing to acknowledge that someone else knows more than you do. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank you.